I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 5. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. First, let's give a setting for the church at Corinth there. These Corinthians had some problems, I mean big problems. In this book, Paul deals with some Christian living issues in his writings that he doesn't address to any of the other churches to whom he wrote. These people made up predominantly of Gentiles brought a lot of pagan culture into the church. After all, the city of Corinth where they lived was the home of the temple of Aphrodite. In Greek mythology, Aphrodite is the goddess of love, beauty, and sexual rapture. Our English word aphrodisiac comes from this mythological character. Because the city of Corinth was the home of two separate converging shipping ports, a lot of commerce passed through the city. Thus, it was always full of sailors looking for, well, a good time. And the temple didn't disappoint them. Temple-sponsored prostitution was provided for all the visitors and the residents alike. It was commonplace there, so much so that in the minds of the residents, abuse of alcohol, sexual promiscuity, and brawling, well, that just represented normal conduct to them. In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the issues of sinful practice within the church itself that go way beyond what Christians today can even imagine. It's a gross understatement to simply make the observation that this was a very spiritually troubled church. It's generally believed that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul while on his third missionary journey from Ephesus in 55-56 AD. So we begin reading with chapter 1, and we see that they were an enthusiastic bunch of folks. Verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We find Paul's greeting to the church in verses 1 through 3. You'll notice that Paul is careful to note his calling as an apostle here. We'll see him defend that calling when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Incidentally, in verse 1, Sosthenes is probably the former ruler of the synagogue in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. That's where Paul preached at Corinth. It would appear that Sosthenes received Christ and became a disciple. Paul then establishes some basic principles regarding salvation, beginning in verse 2. You'll notice that the church, the Greek word ekklesia, or called out assembly, the church at Corinth is made up of people who, first of all, are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and then secondly, are called to be saints, 
And then thirdly, call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Believers are those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus at the time of their salvation experience and thus are called to be saints. That's because they are ones who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. The local assembly is to be comprised of those who have established themselves as saints through trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. In verse 3, Paul extends his standard greeting, expressing his desire that they experience grace and peace from God in their walk as believers. Then he gets right down to business with comments packed full of meaning, perhaps even double meanings. In verse 4, he commends them for the grace of God, but he's obviously talking about more than just saving grace here, as is evidenced in verse 5, which starts with a Greek conjunction, hati. That conjunction indicates that his comments through verse 7 are offshoots of the grace that he mentioned in verse 4. As a result, these Corinthians come short in no gift, he says in verse 7, which really becomes part of the problem that he deals with when he gets down to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, and 14 as well. The excessive practices with those spiritual gifts, manifestations of those within the church services, well, that becomes the really big problem. In verses 8 and 9, Paul prepares them for the comments of rebuke that will follow, assuring them that he's not questioning the authenticity of their salvation experience, and he is emphasizing God's ability to preserve them in Jesus Christ. With that said, now it's time to begin addressing the problems within the church itself. What about church division? Well, that's what Paul deals with in verses 10 through 17. Verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul gets right to the point, one big problem in the church there, and that's contention. Being a much-desired travel spot, the Corinthian Christians had been exposed to several teachers presenting Christ. They developed a little, well, little pockets of loyalties to people like Cephas or Peter and Paul and Apollos. Add that to their list of contentious issues, sort of like, you know, sports fans today argue over who's the best among their favorite players. So Paul here is, he's not discouraging baptism. He's just thankful that he personally did not add to the division by baptizing people in the church himself. I'm confident that to the local pastor, he left that. Paul served in the capacity of an apostle, not as the pastor of the churches where he visited. Incidentally, Crispus was likely the head of the Corinthian synagogue in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, and Gaius was likely the one mentioned as Paul's host in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. 
These are the only two at Corinth personally baptized by Paul himself, with the exception of the household of Stephanus. Many think that that Stephanus was the Corinthian jailer of Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. Now, some have used these comments by Paul to formulate an opinion that water baptism is not that significant for a believer. Well, that's simply not so. While water baptism does not make a person more saved, Paul treats it with great significance for the new Christian in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. We talk about those know-it-all Greeks in verses 18 to 31. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God." Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise men according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are." that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Well, the discussion for the balance of this chapter 1 is framed by verse 18 when it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is a term that Paul used to describe the preaching of the gospel, the saving power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through The actual Greek word used there for preaching, or in the New King James Version for message, is logos, which as a noun means word or message. Corinth was a big Greek city. Greeks considered themselves very sophisticated, and they considered themselves very smart. Greek culture was considered by them to be a cut above the culture of other societies. Now, that being the case, their intellectual heroes were, well, of course, Greeks, and they had a tendency to count inferior anything that wasn't Greek with regard to religion. Well, anything, actually. That's why Paul deals extensively with this issue in these verses. In verse 19, while describing those who hold a disdain for the gospel message, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. That's a passage demonstrating that in the midst of the siege of uh, Jerusalem in 701 B.C., the people still rejected God's word, along with their wise and prudent men, in verse 20. Nonetheless, verse 21 declares that even so, the preaching of the gospel message is still the power that brings salvation. 
That example serves as the object of his subsequent comments regarding the so-called wise men and wisdom. Verse 22 summarizes the problem. It says, For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Paul adds in verse 23 that this message of the cross rubs the Messiah rejecting Jews the wrong way, and on the other hand, seems simplistically foolish to those who embrace Greek culture. Nevertheless, it's still the message that saves from sin, and that just about sums it up. In verses 26 to 28, we see that these sophisticates had a disdain for the very principles upon which our faith is built, their attitudes being reflected in verses 27 and 28. These people may mock the preaching of the gospel of Christ and redemption on the cross for its lack of sophistication, at least in the minds of the Greeks, but nonetheless, it's the power of God that they mock. Despite their attitude regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, none of them will find solace in their so-called wisdom when they're judged at the white throne judgment. That's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Paul explains in these verses that secular wisdom is at odds with God's wisdom, so much so that our so-called intellectuals of today still mock the things of God. But where does real wisdom actually come from? Well, verse 30 says, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, as believers, we became wise and righteous and sanctified and redeemed in Christ. Truth is truth, so just bring on the mockery. We can take it. In verse 31, Paul condenses Jeremiah 9.24. He says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord." And that's the quotation from Jeremiah 9:24, which Paul alludes to and quotes portions of it in verse 31 of this passage. Then we have the simple message, Christ crucified in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verses 1-5 through five may not seem particularly significant to the casual reader, but I've adopted them as the definitive way in which I conduct my preaching ministry. In essence, here's what Paul's saying. The power of God, it's in the Word of God. For the first several years of my preaching ministry, I ignored the admonition of my homiletics professor. He encouraged us to stick to expository preaching. When I finally came around to capturing the essence of what Paul's declaring in these five verses, I realized that Paul is saying, skip the fancy oratory, just tell them what God has said in His Word. Since coming to that realization... I've adopted a practice of ceasing from my efforts to prepare a fancy oratory, which I wasn't very good at anyway, and I just try to stick to telling the congregation the truths, the ones that I've discovered in the passage and I've been studying the preceding week. And that's expository preaching. If you've heard me preach, you know that I quote 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 at the beginning of each message. And that's because I want to remind myself and the congregation 
that the power of God is actually in the Word of God. It's not to be found in fancy or stirring oratory. Fancy dynamic oratory may indeed stir the emotions, but actually it's the substance of the message that will strengthen believers for the long haul. You notice that Paul focuses on what he knew, and that was the clear message of life in Christ. He makes no attempt to compete in knowledge or wisdom on other fronts, just the preaching of the cross. That's all he talked about, the preaching of the cross of Christ. It's worth taking note once again the value of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Had Jesus died a natural death, then he would have had no power to save anyone. Paul's clear presentation of that fact is seen in the formal definition of the gospel that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. Then we talk about spiritual wisdom. How does one acquire spiritual wisdom? That's found in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Now verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the princes of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God." Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The wisdom of the world is contrary to God's wisdom. That's a point that Paul began dealing with all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. The world has always been bent on disproving and discounting God. Just look back at Noah's era and later the Tower of Babel. No use for God whatsoever. Now, why is that? Well, rebels just don't like boundaries. They eliminate, at least in their minds, the boundaries by explaining away who who makes those boundaries. In verse 6, Paul identifies the group who will understand his message, and those people are classified here as the mature. The Greek word teleos means mature, complete. Now, the Greek word for mystery in verse 7 is mysterion. It's a Greek word. As you can see, mystery is a near transliteration of the Greek word, which literally means that which cannot be known by the natural mind. In other words, these spiritual concepts can only be digested by a spiritually mature mind. So don't ever hold out hope that the secular mind will ever draw the conclusion in his style of wisdom that God is the center of the universe. It just won't happen. In verse 9, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, which says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. 
That verse draws attention to the totally unexpected grace that God bestows on those who love Him. Wisdom is translated from the Greek word Sophia. We get our word sophomore from this Greek word, defined by the American Heritage Dictionary, probably influenced by Greek sophos, wise, and moros means stupid. Therefore, a sophomore is a wise, stupid person. Yeah, I believe that just about describes it, don't you? The world has devised its own system of wise thinking, but our wisdom comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we're filled and thus controlled by the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of God when it comes to, well, everything. The mind of God is a great mind to have, I think you'd agree. The world doesn't get it, according to verse 14. It says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Lost people, or those with a natural mind, they don't like our thinking processes, and they don't want to. We see the world through spiritual eyes given to us by the Holy Spirit, and they see the world from the perspective of the established world order. That's what verse 13 means when it indicates that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit helps us in our thinking process by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Our wisdom arises from the spiritual precepts found in God's Word. Where did their world order come from? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, not part of today's reading, but really good. It says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the, listen, God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age, and that passage, well, that's Satan himself. Quite on the contrary, however, Paul frames the contrast when he says of believers in verse 16, he says of us, but we have the mind of Christ. In chapter 3, we have a sure sign of a carnal Christian, and that sure sign is division, beginning with verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase." Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Well, this church at Corinth was a bickering bunch of people. They struggled about everything. As we saw in chapter 1, they even divided over who they followed with regard to spiritual leaders. Again mentioned here in verse 4 regarding Apollos. Paul calls these Corinthians carnal rather than spiritual in verse 1. Now, here's a very important concept of Scripture. Spirit-led believers do not bicker. They are always unified. It's impossible that the Holy Spirit indwelling me will ever cause me to struggle with another believer who is also led by the Holy Spirit. 
So why do Christians like those in Corinth? Why do they struggle with each other? It's always because one or more are not at the time being led by the Holy Spirit. It only takes one to cause division, and his spiritual classification in that state is that of a carnal believer. Now, let's not go overboard here. We're talking contentious behavior in this discussion. I do have opinions about things. My favorite colors are blue and red. I'm kind of a Crayola 8 kind of a guy. The one who picked out the color scheme for our church had a strong partiality for green, green everywhere. The people in churches actually divide and contend over color schemes used as they decorate their churches? Yes, they do, every day. How can something that trivial cause friction and division in a church? Well, here's the answer. No leadership of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives each believer perspective. It keeps the main thing the main thing in our lives. The Holy Spirit helps us identify the real enemy, and that real enemy is Satan. The Holy Spirit inside helps us defer to others on our trivial preferences. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the following, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is fulfilled naturally, by the way, in spirit-led believers. We may have preferences different from other believers, but we never allow them to become points of contention. That's when we're spirit-led. By the way, the Holy Spirit will always lead us to contend with Satan. When Satan attacks, we are there if we're led by the Holy Spirit. These contentious believers are spiritually immature, we're told. Thus, the reference to milk nourishment in verse 2. The analogy is clear. Kids don't understand the big picture and therefore make immature decisions that may result in harm, and that's because they lack wisdom. Likewise, immature believers who assert themselves on spiritual issues will many times come to the incorrect judgment on issues. Why? It's because of their frame of reference, their paradigm, just as those Paul refers to in chapter 2, who have the wisdom of the world, but not the wisdom of God. When others who weigh situations based upon spiritual principles, remember 1 Corinthians 2.13, when they disagree with them, they become contentious. Spiritual decision-making does not make sense to a carnal believer. Now, there's another point worth mentioning in this passage of Scripture— Many Christians today tend to think that a so-called believer who displays carnal-looking actions in his or her life is doing so because of not truly being saved. Many have incorrectly concluded that all saved people look and act like saved people all the time. Now, verse 1 here is clear. These people, those in the Corinthian church, they're regarded by Paul to be Christians because he calls them brethren there. He's talking about spiritual brethren. And yet, in verse 1, he refers to them as being yet carnal. Now, you must understand, life is tough for a carnal Christian. I've always considered this carnal state in one's Christian life to be transitional, not permanent. Carnal living for the believer is hampered by such passages as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. Look at the notes that I've written on those two passages, and you'll see what I mean. Here's the deal. God does not overlook rebellion in the believer. 
As Paul discusses the various aspects of ministering, Paul having planted in Apollos, having watered at Corinth, then he transitions into the importance of each row by linking it to the rewards for each. He illustrates his point with the construction of a building in verse 9, and then he fully develops his analogy in verses 10 through 15, which are the verses that we're getting ready to look at right now. These verses describe, by the way, the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll say more about in a few moments. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So though speaking specifically about the various aspects of labor shared by Apollos and himself, Paul compares here the Christian life to a building. Uh, It's a building metaphor. Christ is the foundation in this metaphor, and we build upon that foundation with our lifelong actions, just as he and Apollos had done there in Corinth. Spiritually based actions add to the foundation the following, gold, silver, and precious stones, and then carnally based actions add wood, hay, and straw. After the rapture, which is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's seen in 2 Corinthians 5.10. That's where the fire, verse 13, here in this passage takes place. Only spiritually-based actions will endure that fire. Subsequently, rewards will be presented to believers based upon the enduring spiritually-based actions. Believers characterized by carnal actions will be stripped down to the foundation of Christ, we see in verse 11. That's that which they started with in their Christian lives. That's right, no rewards for them, but clearly salvation for these is understood according to verse 15, when it says, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. It is true that sometimes saved refers to physical salvation and sometimes it refers to spiritual salvation. The Greek word for saved is sozo, which means I save. It must be understood in the context of the passage where it's found. In this spiritual setting, the meaning of saved is indisputably a reference to eternal life. This understanding is vital in light of the carnal believers that Paul began discussing in verse 1. Understand this, carnal believers, well, they're believers nonetheless. Now, if that bothers you, then go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. So here's the lesson. A spirit-led life is productive. The carnal nature of man, when allowed to manifest itself, is divisive and non-productive. In fact, there are six separate judgments of mankind seen in Scripture. The judgment seat of Christ seen here is just one of the six. And if you'd like to know more about the other five judgments, then see my article entitled Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. That's to be found under the topic section of BibleTrack.org.
Then Paul further addresses the issue of unification in verses 16 to 23 of chapter 3. Verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world of life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Verse 16 says that we're housing the Holy Spirit inside of each of us. This concept contrasts with that of the Old Testament where God's dwelling place was inside the tabernacle and later in Solomon's temple. Look at my article entitled The Shekinah Glory under the topic section of BibleTrack.org to see exactly what I mean. So yes, today God no longer inhabits a man-made structure, but rather he's inside every believer. Now think about it. You're like a mobile sanctuary walking around with God inside. Paul intentionally emphasizes the importance in these verses of displaying ourselves as houses of God, with all the appropriate intention to godliness in our actions. And finally, when you bicker with another mobile house of God, you're just manifesting that you're not allowing God to control your mobile sanctuary. I mean, can't we just all get along? Well, yes, we can, when we are all led by God's Holy Spirit. Verse 17 is quite sobering. It says, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. We're once again back to the discussion of chastisement for disobedient believers according to the guidelines of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. If you're still not clear on that, you need to really take a look at those two passages and see exactly what we're talking about when we mention chastisement. Paul wants to make certain that those who fit the description of carnal in verse 1 understand that there is a price to pay, and it is physical destruction. Now look at context here. If the body is physical in verse 16, and it is, then verse 17 references physical destruction for disobedient believers— In other words, those who defile their visible testimony. For those who spend their time worrying that disobedient professing Christians are getting away with something, well, worry no more. They aren't getting away with anything. God knows who they are, and he has it all under control. So let's tie this discussion up now. What about these carnal but wise in this age believers of verse 18? They have no edge with God. Their worldly wisdom is futile. Paul then takes us back to the issue that began this discussion by referring to the issue of divisions regarding mentors in verses 22 and 23. It doesn't matter who your spiritual mentor was. We are to be unified in Jesus Christ through the indwelling leadership of the Holy Spirit. There is no room for carnality or worldly wisdom. Incidentally, Paul quotes Job chapter 5 verse 13 in his verse 19 of this passage. It says, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's a true statement by Eliphaz in his speech to Job. His speech was otherwise riddled with a lot of misunderstandings about God's dealings with man. But that statement is nonetheless true. 
Paul continues to add to the discussion of mentors in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's begin now with verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you different from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full." You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, yes, Paul's still talking about his issue of division over spiritual mentors. That's the discussion that he began back in chapter 3. From this chapter, it would appear that there were those in the church at Corinth who expressed a good bit of disdain for Paul, apparently in favor toward Apollos or Peter, Cephas. Paul says in verse 3 that their negative appraisal of him is no big deal. He says it's a very small thing. He acquires his worth from God in verse 4, he says. He goes on to tell them that they would be better served to let God do the evaluation of worth. So by what authority does Paul correct these Corinthians? Well, he deals with that in this chapter. Note the references to his own ministry among the Corinthians that he emphasizes. He says in verse 1 that he's a servant of Christ. In verse 2, a steward of the mysteries of God. We talked about that. An apostle in verse 9, and he's their spiritual father, he says in verse 15. Effective ministry is everything to Paul's motivation as an apostle of Christ. 
Why should they defame, in verse 13, why should they defame Paul? He is the spiritual father of them all. Well, many of them anyway, in verse 15. In other words, he led them to Christ through the gospel. Also, he has considered his life worthless except to preach the gospel. He sacrificed everything for this mission. Oh, one more thing. Through extreme hardship, Paul lives his life in such a way that he serves as an example to be followed with respect to living the Christian life. Many preachers and teachers have used verse 2 as a verse on giving money to the church. That's not really what it is. Verse 2 really has nothing to do with money in its direct application here. The Greek word for stewards there is oikonomos. Here it's literally a word that refers to someone who's in charge of the affairs of someone else's household. In those days, it was typically a slave who was entrusted with household affairs, and he was in charge of the other household slaves as well. That one, that householder or steward, was responsible for everything that went right and everything that went wrong as well. Paul describes himself as a steward of the gospel. He must spread it and teach it properly. It's been entrusted to him just like the steward of a household. So what we are in Christ is received by grace. It's God's gift, free gift to believers. Free and gift are synonymous terms. Paul points this out to the high-minded Corinthians in verses 7 and 8 by using some sarcastic irony. Some of these Christians apparently thought they were special in the church apart from the grace of Christ. So here's the lesson. Everything you are spiritually that makes a difference is given to you by God, so stop bragging about it. Paul continues with the irony in verse 10 with the suggestions that these conceited Corinthians were the wise, strong, and honorable ones instead of Paul himself. Then Paul deals with the pride of these Corinthians. He notes that their pride exceeds that claimed by any of the apostles of Christ. So what's up with that? Well, the answer is these Corinthians had unmerited pride. Paul calls upon these Corinthians to become humble before God. He invokes the fact in verses 15 and 16 that he is their spiritual father and fathers serve as examples to their children Here's a contradiction to the old unscriptural idiom, don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, let's face it. You and I both have a responsibility to live lives before God that are acceptable, that are absolutely acceptable examples to other people. Like it or not, you will be emulated by others. Oh, one more thing. Apparently, some had taken it as a personal insult that Paul had sent Timothy to them instead of coming himself. We see in verses 17 and 18. Let's face it, some of the carnal believers at Corinth were just stirring up trouble. Regarding his future visit to the Corinthians, his desire is to have these matters of contention straightened out before he ever arrives. So he can come, he says, in the spirit of gentleness, rather than to chastise them, verse 21 you got to love verse 20. He says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. In other words, it's not what you say, but rather who's backing you up. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 makes you wonder what were these Corinthians thinking. Verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned 
that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world." But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore put away from yourselves the evil person." Well, here's the situation of the church there in Corinth. They had a man in the church who was having sexual relations with his father's wife. It doesn't say his mother, so we assume it must have been his stepmother. Literally, the Greek phraseology reads, a certain woman or wife, gune can be translated either way, a certain woman or wife of his father to have. Remember what I said in the introduction about the moral state of the city of Corinth. They were way depraved. This depravity had affected the mindset of the people in the church there. Paul even goes so far in verse 2 as to identify their motivation for taking no action when he says that they are puffed up. The Greek word there is phusiao, which means conceited. In other words, there was no expression of sorrow on the part of the congregation that this was taking place within their local assembly because they were conceited or proud of their open-mindedness. What's worse, even Gentiles had no tolerance for this kind of conduct, according to verse 1. And as far as the Jewish believers go, take note of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 30. It says, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. Now understand this from verses 3 and 4. Even though Paul is not at Corinth and probably does not understand the circumstances around the personalities involved, he still proclaims that the solution is plain. Now, that's important inasmuch as there are those who would suggest in churches today that the context of the activity might yield a different opinion. No, sin is sin. All Paul needs to know about the circumstances are reported there in verse 1. More investigation is not necessary to make a declarative judgment here. Paul's instructions to them can be found in verse 5. It says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it's clear what it means when we look at the explanation given in verse 9. He said in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Then we see from verse 13 exactly what is meant. He says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So it's clear. Put him out of the church. But wait, there's more. Not only do they put him out of the church, but they agree not to have any fellowship with him. I mean, not at all, even though he now is outside the church. Look at verse 11. It says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. A distinction is made here in verses 9 and 10. Paul says that you can't shun everyone involved in sin, but you must shun those calling themselves believers who are involved in this kind of depraved conduct. So what's the reason for that? Well, it's done so that they will be shamed for their abominable conduct. Paul explains in this chapter that we have no control over judging the lost people, but we must not tolerate open rebellion against God within our fellowship. Paul's reference to leaven in verses 6 through 8 is a picture of sin. Leaven equals sin in this passage. On the eve of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, anything that contained leaven was eliminated from the house of the observant Jews. Likewise, Paul compares the sin of this man to leaven. If you don't get rid of leaven, it spreads. Likewise, if you don't eliminate open rebellion against God from your fellowship, well, that spreads also. Well, you have to admit, these are pretty harsh words, but it's a harsh situation. Where's the love, you might ask? Well, the love is shown by demonstrating to this person his need to repent of his actions and rejoin the fellowship of believers pursuing victorious Christian living. In light of this passage, can there really be any question about how to properly handle the issues of immorality that's prevalent in many of today's churches? Now, the question may arise concerning the scope of these verses. Verses 12 and 13 make it clear that the church at Corinth has no authority to judge them who are outside, in other words, those who are not part of the local assembly there. The responsibility of the church is to make certain such offenders are not counted as part of the local assembly. So what about fellowship with such professing Christians who are not part of one's local assembly? Well, the admonition of verse 11 had been previously communicated to the folks at Corinth when Paul speaks generally. He says, But now I have written to you, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, the Greek word there is pornos, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such persons. Hmm. Does that mandate only apply to those under formal church discipline? Well, the wording of verse 11 indicates that it is a previously stated general declaration that just happens to apply in this particular situation as well. Now, Paul does make a similar statement in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. That's where he says, "...and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them." The list of unacceptable conduct in that passage includes fornication, the Greek word there again being pornea, or sexual misconduct. That's the same Greek word here translated pornos, or describing a fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. In the Ephesians chapter 5 passage, there is no context of local church discipline. Well, there it's just a general statement that believers are not to hang out with those who practice this type of conduct. They should expose or rebuke them instead. 
In other words, 1 Corinthians 5.11 and Ephesians 5.11 stand on their own as appropriate to be applied to all those who practice morally disgusting conduct, but especially toward those who profess to be Christians. Finally, pay close attention to the motivation for shunning these sinning believers, to shame them for their conduct for the purpose of causing them to want to restore fellowship with God and their fellow believers. To draw an example of this biblical concept from the Old Testament, consider the ministry of Jeremiah. Because his fellow Jews in Jerusalem had rejected the counsel of God through his prophesying, God told Jeremiah to have no fellowship with these people because of their persistent wickedness. God even told Jeremiah not to attend their funerals in Jeremiah chapter 16. Nobody anguished more than Jeremiah over this God-mandated alienation from his own people, but God had dictated it and Jeremiah complied. To take it one step further, God instructed Jeremiah to refrain from praying for their prosperity. Ooh, let me say that again. God instructed Jeremiah to refrain from praying for their prosperity. He said, only pray for their repentance toward God in Jeremiah chapter 14. In conclusion, Paul begins a rebuke of these Corinthians in verses 12 and 13 for having not been willing to judge this man within their own congregation. This discussion transitions into the issue of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which was their apparent practice of taking one another to civil court rather than taking problems between believers before a local church council. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.